Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 8 of the podcast. Today I'm starting a new mini-series on the question of violence in our fantasy. With the dropping of the new Game of Thrones prequel trailer, once again we'll have to face the reality of what Game of Thrones was when it started all those years ago. Our brutal, over-the-top, violent portrayal of the worst of human impulse. Most people poo-poo this kind of talk and say something like this. Well, if you can't handle it, don't watch it. But I've made the point before, especially in my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, that there's some pretty compelling evidence to suggest that watching violent content does increase violence ideation and may even contribute to making certain age groups, especially of young men, more violent. And with the situation in the world being as precarious as it is, especially these past few years, especially these past few months, this question of violence in media should be on the forefront of everyone's minds. So, I'll be the one doing the provoking as usual. (laughs) The question I want to start with is this. Considering violence specifically, is empathy always a good thing? Now, you might think, what's the connection there? But stay with me. The question I ask is, can there be too much empathy? And if so, what might be the negative consequences of having too much empathy for the suffering of others? In this discussion, I talk about Game of Thrones. I also talk about The Morning Show on Apple TV+, and the movie Silence, Martin Scorsese's film about Catholic missionaries in Japan. Yes, this is probably the only podcast where you will find such different media discussed in the same session. Oh well. Uh, Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me. They keep me creating, even when I really don't feel like it. You might hear my nose is still stuffed up. I've been sick. This is exactly the kind of time I don't really feel like creating. But with my patrons there and expecting me to come up with new things, I have to, and I love it. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for $2 a month and get access to early live-streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks for life, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. I also occasionally give special gifts to my patrons, including recently a few free audiobook codes for the complete Raven Sun uh, epic fantasy series. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help other people discover the podcast, especially in these early stages of its existence. And thank you if you've already done so. Now, on to today's show. So this whole thing about uh, about empathy versus compassion, it's something that's been floating around in my mind, especially as as it relates to storytelling. 
it's interesting because when I started to work more seriously on the um, screenplay for for the life of Saint Olga, some of you know about this, maybe some of you don't, but I have a 50 minute pilot that's uh, being pitched currently to producers um, all over the place uh, for a for an epic historical series inspired by the life of Saint Olga of Kiev, uh, who's effectively the first woman ruler of what eventually would become Russia, and she had a, has a fantastic and really cinematic and interesting life. Um, and uh, in in the process of writing this thing, um, my co-writer and I got the amazing opportunity to work with two Hollywood screenwriters, one of whom um, is an Oscar nominee for a short film they did, possibly even Oscar winner. I, I might be getting that wrong. Um, Greg, if you ever see this, I apologize if I got it wrong. Um, Greg Helvey, he's a fantastic uh, teacher and a wonderful writer. And um, the we were surprised uh, to have the inclusion and the participation in this special seminar that we were doing to work on our uh, screenplay of a man named Bart Gaffigan, who is not particularly well known in the larger world, but inside the world, sort of in the, in the insider world of, of Hollywood screenwriters, uh, he is a fixer. He's a guy that people call to get things done properly. He's one of the most well-known screenwriters out there. So these two gentlemen were kind enough to um, give their time uh, to for, uh, teach us how to properly write screenplays because I had no idea how to write a screenplay. I've, I've written a few novels, but uh, writing a screenplay is an entirely different craft, an entirely different art. And it was really interesting. But they started out with a really uh, fascinating uh, approach to how you introduce a character um, in any screenplay. It doesn't matter what the genre is. And they talked about the importance of getting the aud- audience to empathize with your characters. And they use the term empathy very, very specifically. And they, interestingly, they use the, um, the example of the movie Rambo, which I haven't seen. Some of you might have, um, because it's, because the main character I, I gather is not a particularly positive human being. I mean, first blood, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a <laughs> you know, action movies in the eighties. We're not really about, um, you know, uplifting humanitarian uh, storylines, right? Um, but they made the point, these two screenwriters, that these, these screenwriters of Rambo, in order to make such a character who's potentially unpalatable, uh, interesting to the audience, they used something like 35, I think, techniques to encourage empathy between the audience and the main character. Uh, so how do you make a killing machine empath- empathetic uh, to an audience of people who want to be entertained and distracted from, you know, the violence and the unpleasantness of the news that they watch every night. Well, you do it in 35 different ways. Now they didn't get down into the specifics of it, but they just threw out this number as a kind of, you know, it was meant to shut to to kind of have us have our jaws drop and to encourage the importance of having um, the audience empathize with the main character. And they use the word empathy very, very clearly. Um, I've naturally assumed this is what you do when you write. You want your, and it's true, right? When we read, we uh, are we use our mode mirror neurons in our brain, which effectively allow our brain to almost literally um, experience what we read or what we see or what we feel in a person next to us. And that's, that's those, they're especially powerfully activated when we read fiction. I've talked about this before. It's it's why I argue that uh, writing good stories is a much more important um, 
endeavor that some people are willing to admit that it's not merely about entertainment. It's not merely about escapism. And it's also why I argue that bad stories are not simply something that you should just set aside and say, Oh, that's just a bad story. Let whoever wishes, whoever wishes to enjoy it, let them, let them enjoy it. I honestly believe that some stories should not be told. And although I didn't have the proper language for it, um, I think part of that, part of why I think, and I, and I strongly believe that certain kinds of stories shouldn't be told, that there are objectively good stories and objectively bad stories, part of that has to do with the nature of empathy. And I started to read a little bit on well, the difference between empathy and compassion from different perspectives, from a philosophical, from, from a psychological perspective, from a kind of apologetic perspective from different points of view. And I found out some really interesting things. And although the title of this talk um, was, is kind of a clickbaity in the sense that it's, that it's uh, going to talk about how, you know, some bad, some bad things that games, game of Thrones did the books, not the movies, uh, not the, not the TV show. Um, That was, (laughs) I anticipated that I would speak a lot more about uh, game of thrones that i'm going to because actually i want to speak a little bit more about the movie silence which we started talking about those of you who are in my book club you know we started talking about it in our last session for the c.s lewis is that hideous strength and it's because i started when i started to read about empathy versus charity versus compassion that movie came up several times in my reading and i found a discussion of it really interesting especially as uh, as it relates to storytelling devices and how Modern people tell modern stories even in the guise of of historical fiction. And this is certainly also true of historical fantasy like Game of Thrones. So hang on. Um, We're going to get to Game of Thrones, but I want to start a little bit with with Silence. Those of you who haven't watched it, this is a Martin Scorsese movie that came out about two years ago uh, starring Andrew Garfield and um, Liam Neeson about uh, Jesuit missionaries in 17th century Japan who are forced... Um, or who apostatize from their from their Christian faith after they are uh, subjected to the awful spectacle of seeing their flock being tortured in absolutely inhuman ways, uh, and it's it's a very intense film. It's a very uh, powerful film in the sense that it leaves a very strong impression that you can't get rid of afterwards for a very long time. I wouldn't call it powerful in the sense of uplifting at all. Um, but silence really bothered me, and for a very long time. And I, and I, although I could express myself clearly about what it was that I didn't like, I didn't quite have the language of empathy versus compassion. And I really like that distinction, and I'll explain why. Because there's something wrong in the reaction that the priest has to seeing his um, his flock being tortured. And it initially it was so it, it really affected me. And I couldn't really put it into words at first because I thought, because it was so obvious to me what was wrong. And that's that it didn't make any sense to me considering the actual historical literature on martyrdom and actual martyrdom accounts throughout the church's history, no matter what century you are. It never made, it was almost never the case in both the hagiographical accounts, which obviously tend to sort of not be worried so much about strict historical data and the ones that are actually sort of uh, the minutes of the meeting, like that the Romans wrote down themselves, the actual uh, official document of the martyrdom. They both are very clear in documenting the kind of reaction that most of the 
the Christians had to seeing their fellows, their family members, tortured and killed. That reaction was almost always one of encouragement with an eye towards what happens afterwards. It was never focused on the process of suffering, and it was never an empathic or empathetic reaction in the people watching the, su- the suffering. In fact, it's clearly documented, again, not only in the hagiographic hege- literature, but also in the, the verifiable historical uh, record, that martyrdoms, Christian martyrdoms, produced more martyrs than they deterred. There are very interesting accounts of early martyrs or martyrdoms where the people would fling themselves into the fire to get to their end more quickly, not because they were trying to get rid of the horrible suffering, but because they were trying to get to the point after the martyrdom. They were quick, they were trying to sort of, to quote, you know, to quote a phrase, reach the embrace of Christ more quickly. Um, so when you have this narrative of this young priest who comes in already with racked with doubts about the church's the church's mission in Japan, Catholic Church's mission in Japan in the 17th century. And then when he starts to have these tremendously earth-shattering sufferings at seeing his flock in pain, I started to think what why is it that the author of the of the novel the book is is based on and Scorsese himself are are so absolutely assured of the fact that the priest who's a missionary, a professional missionary, would react in a way that seems to be not historical, anachronistic. And so I found this really interesting article in First Things Magazine. It's called Empathy is Not Charity. And it talks specifically about about silence, but the points that it makes are interesting and can be extended further, which I hope to do today. In fact, what what the author of the article for first thing says is that the whole setup is in the novel and in the movie is a lie from what we can tell from the actual historical documents available from the martyrdoms and from the priests that were involved in in the 17th century catholic mission to japan what ended up happening was not a super uh refined you know cruel in a refined way I don't know if there's a word like that in English, uh, torture who specifically attacked the flock in order to get the priest to apostatize. That didn't happen. The, the priests apostatized after being tortured. So they couldn't deal with the pain. This was a, cl- this was a clear case of not empathetic suffering, but actual suffering. And in fact, the torturer himself would never even have thought the author of the article argues would never even have thought of employing, the the of using the ploy the tool of making the the flock suffer in the sight of the priest because he would have known as a former catholic himself the torturer was a lapsed catholic that the priest would only encourage his flock that he wouldn't feel their suffering and feel a need to end it because he as a priest is and as a missionary should be absolutely assured of the fact that they that if they hold on to the end they will be guaranteed paradise. So the 17th century torture would not would never have even dreamt of using this as a ploy to make the priest uh, apostatize. It's silly. In fact, it's totally anachronistic. And it shows a, a modern sensibility and a modern way of thinking that equates empathy 
with co-suffering love. Something that Dostoevsky never fell into, by the way. Dostoevsky allows for the possibility of there being co-suffering love. But that co-suffering love does not fixate on suffering. It redeems. It atones for, and through cleansing suffering, it then allows the person who is taking the suffering on him, on him or herself, to save himself and the person that he's taking the sufferings on for, for them. This is not what happens with empathy. So if Dostoevsky's characters feel charity or compassion towards each other, the character of the priest in silence, and I'm going to argue that a lot of the characters and the readers of Game of Thrones feel towards the characters in Game of Thrones, they feel empathy. Now, what's the problem here? Isn't empathy a good thing? Well, actually, this is something really interesting that the article makes a point of. Basically, the article says that as, as secularization has advanced, a historical fact, um, and man has learned uh, to live without God, his solution for the, for the most part, the solution to the problem of communion, the problem of feeling close to someone or something else, something outside of oneself, is to draw closer to other people, which, is, which, which seemed to be a good and normal thing. Right. If we should want to draw closer to each other, we are all human beings. We are made to love in some sense. But this drawing closer to other people has taken an unprecedented and ultimately untenable um, way of being. But this is a really strange manifestation of, of, or rather, reaction to postmodernism. I've talked uh, a lot with with my book club about this bizarre manifestation of postmodern thought and reality, where. We, have, we as human beings are expected to allow the other to have the full expression of their truth or their, um, or their beauty or their identity because that otherness that they have is completely um, alien to us. It's not something that we are able to participate in in any way. This is, this is a, a kind of a tenet of postmodern um, uh, philosophy, and it's something that that a lot of people assume, especially when when we invoke things like you know no cultural appropriation or things like this, or when people are told that that uh, like I mentioned with the book American Dirt, which was not not written by a brown person, um, but it talks about Mex- Mexican illegal immigrants. There was a huge outcry from from uh, some communities saying that the person shouldn't have written the book because uh, I can't remember whether it was a man or woman, he or she could not possibly understand what the those communities go through because that other is so other. But this is such a not, not human way of interacting with each other. And we all intrinsically understand that we can have a sense of communion and community with other people. And it's so, it's become, but so on the one hand, we are told that we cannot um, associate ourselves with the reality of, of the other. But on the other hand, we feel that need very strongly. So we are told that we can't, but we still do. And in a weird way, that has led to a kind of a um, manifestation of this desire for communion with the other that is fairly unhealthy. And it has to do with the dark side of empathy. Empathy, I'm not suggesting that it is a bad thing. Empathy being the ability to uh, feel someone else's pain or feel someone else's state uh, of emotion, right? The thing is, though, that the postmodern solipsism has led to the opposite striving, a kind of conviction that we all should be experiencing the feeling of others, which in practice, and this is the key, turns out to be their suffering more often than their joys. 
Empathy is almost always invoked in situations when someone else is suffering, not when someone else is having joy. You don't empathize with someone when they're happy, usually. That word isn't used. Not really. It's it's rare. Um, as if those feelings were our own. In fact, there's a kind of weird moral obligation that some people seem to put on each other, saying that you have to feel the pain of someone else if you are to be fully human. I didn't realize that we're being told by a culture to completely opposing things and we're expected to be morally obligated to do both we're morally obligated not to culturally appropriate but we're also morally obligated to feel everyone else's pain as if it is our own so yeah this is a problem because we can't we can't at all so we're and the way that we feel other people's pain is by feeling their suffering right not by feeling their joys so the problem is though is empathy is not compassion Empathy is empathy. Compassion is something else. Compassion is an ability to have a little bit of emotional distance and feel sorry for someone, not in a kind of condescending way, in an affirming way, in a way that allows for that person to have the suffering that they're having and for you to have a connection to a source of joy that you might actually be able to use to pull them out of it. Well, if you empathize with them fully in the way that we are expected to, there actually is no way out of it because you've just descended into that darkness and they have no way of getting out. Now neither do you. So what does this actually do? It leads to a kind of unmitigated communion, a kind of communion without the a mediation of someone or something that might be able to pull you out of that darkness, to pull you out of that horror. What ends up happening is that any needy or unscrupulous individual can use this as an advantage to manipulate pretty much anybody they want. All you need is to get people to feel guilty about something, and then you can manipulate them about it uh, in any way you like. So, so what, en what ends up actually happening is in your, in your desire to be one with the person who's suffering, you lose yourself, and you lose any possibility of redirecting that suffering in a way that might become healing to either you or to that other person. So you've just lost the plot. And in fact, you've made the situation much worse. What ends up happening is something that we, I think, should be pretty familiar with. It causes an almost unlimited culture of victimhood. Because if you are empathizing with someone who is a victim, you also become, emotionally speaking, and psychologically speaking, a victim yourself but you cannot get yourself or that other person out of that state of victimhood. Psychopaths are highly empathetic. They use that to take advantage of everybody they have in contact, they come into contact with. Yes, it is part of how they manipulate their victims. This was actually in the article specifically, they said psychopaths and uh, needy people. <laughs> um, I, the way that that I, being uh, you know an Orthodox clergyman, would say would look at this is to say that if you want to have any sort of communion with another human being that doesn't have as an intermediary the God who created us both and the God to whom we both have a connection, then there is no fishing line to pull you out. Isn't empathy part of the joy of reading, though? Yeah, I'm not saying empathy is bad. What I'm saying is empathy has a dark side, and I'm going to talk about how the dark side of empathy in storytelling is causing us to tell bad stories about our world. And it's actually perpetuating a culture of victimhood that, okay, I'm going to be, you're going to be surprised about where this goes because there is one show 
television show out there right now that is about that is the show about victimhood par excellence. It's called The Morning Show, and it, it's a it's a um, a fictionalization of the Matt Lauer scandal, um, and it has everything to do with the Me Too movement. And I would have thought that any television show. It's it's showing on Apple Apple TV Plus, so it's not available widely. But it's almost worth the price of admission just to watch the show. Honestly, it's really good um, because a show that's entirely part uh, about vic- victimhood culture comes out of it with a message of such intense compassion and fellow feeling and fellow suffering that I thought I was watching a show about this day, that was written by Dostoevsky, and I expected this thing to be a nonstop pity party. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be flippant about anything, but I expected a show about Me Too to be a show that was wallowing in victimhood, and it wasn't. Instead, a movie about Christian missionaries in Japan was the one perpetuating a narrative of victimhood. So much so that the crucial moment in the movie Silence is is an awful, awful scene where the, the priest is finally reaching his limit. Um, and he always, he's told that all you have to do is step on an icon of, of the crucified Christ. It even has a special name in Japanese. I can't remember what it is, but there's a special name for this icon that is to be stepped on. Uh, in the Japanese propensity to give very specific names for very specific things, which I think is wonderful. And in this, the in the movie, again, I'm not sure about the book. The priest hears the voice of Christ telling him, I am here to be stepped on. It is my job on earth to be stepped on, so go ahead and step on me. And a a prominent Catholic priest uh, who was an apologist for the movie basically said that uh, this was a uh, just that this not only had justification, but it was in fact a kind of holy uh, moment of self sacrifice for for, for the priest because he was, in some sense, um, embodying Christ. This is only possible if you do not believe, if you employ empathy the expense of compassion if you think that there is no way out of a situation except to capitulate and so the priest steps on the on the on the uh, icon and he apostatizes and for the rest of his life uh, he becomes an anti-christian officially um, employed by the japanese government to root out christian propaganda it's a really dark story actually and, and very depressing um, so isn't empathy part of the joy of reading? Empathy is absolutely why we tell stories. Empathy is why we write fiction, because we as writers have the power to make our readers empathize with our characters. But with power, with great power comes great responsibility. Sorry, couldn't help it. Because if we provide them with the kind of story that forces them to empathize with unlimited victimhood without providing for an escape for that suffering then we are actually pro we're actually promoting and perpetuating the kind of reaction to suffering that social justice warriors tend to have and this is i'm not making any points about politics i'm making points about psychology and i'm making points about storytelling um so i don't want people to misunderstand me but what i want to say is that the difference between the brilliance of somebody like Dostoevsky and Game of Thrones is precisely because the modern mindset seems to think that there is actually no way out of suffering. 
and that the only way we can deal with suffering is to feel it together with the person who's suffering. And that's it. But the problem with that is that the reaction that is inspired by that kind of empathy is a, is a reaction that is so emotional that it is a, it approximates the reaction of a mother of an infant who is, who is six months or less. And that response for a mother of an infant or six months or less is absolutely appropriate. If a child starts screaming at the top of his lungs at six months, there's probably something wrong with the child. And the mother needs to react quickly to prevent whatever disaster is about to happen, whether it's you know, the older brother holding the six-month baby over a tub of water, thinking that he's going to go wash that baby right now, or whether it's uh, the mother rolling over a co-sleeping baby and almost um, crushing it by accident, which has happened to some people. So the thing about Game of Thrones, right, and what made my reading of it so interesting and so ultimately disappointing is precisely this difference between empathy and compassion. So when I was reading about it, I, I really resonated with my, with the, these ideas and, and um, it really defined why I liked the first book, the game, a game of Thrones book number one. And the reason I liked a game of Thrones is that it is a book that has profound compassion and empathy for the downtrodden. It's a book about exiles, about outliers, about those that society tends to overlook. And the author has a great deal of affection for these characters. There's a wonderful scene in the first book where Jon Snow meets uh, Tyrion Lannister, both of whom are fringe figures who are uh, marginalized by, by the society. One of them is a bastard and the other one is a, is a dwarf, but a dwarf with an incredible mind. Uh, who is not allowed to use his mind in any proper way. And so he basically uh, misuses his life as a series of, of debauched affairs because he is too intelligent to do nothing. So he might as well just waste his time drinking and, pardon the expression, whoring. Um, the love that the author has for those two characters when they encounter each other is phenomenal. It's a beautiful scene. It's a scene where these two intelligent, interesting, marginalized men find a tenuous moment of connection in a place where they shouldn't, in, in basically the end of the world, in the kind of the darkest, um, well, the place where the night is, um, uh, I forgot what the, what the phrase is, anyway. I'm, not, I'm not that big of a fan anyway, so... <laughs> um, uh, in that, so it, that scene's a wonderful scene because it shows us that the author has has a real sense of love and a sense of affection for those who are downtrodden, and he allows for the possibility of them to to be successful throughout the unfolding of the story. The story is, at least in the beginning, a kind of the possibility for success for those who normally don't have success, and I think it's a great thing to tell in a story. Um, except in starting in book two, we there's a there's a shift. There's there's a shift in the tone. There's a shift in the kind of violence that starts to happen to the characters. And there's a shift in the author's relation to the characters. And it's particularly uh, disturbing in a, in a mass rape scene um, that I don't think we see uh, actually happening um, on screen as far as I remember. But what's even more horrifying is that this character is, a, is a, either artistic or somehow um, mentally um, underdeveloped. And what's even worse is that the reaction of the people who are around her after the rape, she becomes pregnant, they make fun of her and they start to marginalize her in very cruel ways. Um, precisely because 
they have a failure of compassion, not a failure of empathy. So as we go farther and farther into the Game of Thrones, we are detached from the compassion of book one, where the author allowed for the possibility of these downtrodden characters to have fully formed arcs of their own for the shock value of showing you history as it actually is. And here, look at the way that the peasants suffered during war during the Hundred Years' War in France and England. Yes, it's true, the peasants really did suffer. But literature, or good, powerful literature, can really affect a human being, as we know, in very powerful ways. So if you are offering us a vision of unmitigated suffering that doesn't allow for the possibility of getting out of it, because empathy in its most pure, unmitigated form doesn't allow for you to keep your selfhood anymore because you become absorbed in the suffering of the other. This is almost literally, like I said, what happens when you read. You, be, you almost become the, the main character that you're reading in whose perspective you're reading. If that's the case, then unless you're really trying to make a dark point, like much dystopian fiction, 1984 or, or Brave New World, which has very specific social point to make, if you're writing fantasy, which has a which I I believe has uh, is is the genre that has the most power to effect actual change, and you provide this as your worldview, then what you end up doing is perpetuating victimhood. What you end up doing is perpetuating the kind of short-term quick response that wants to fix all the problems now and quickly. And I hate to say this, but this is something that I, that kept appearing to me during that awful, awful, awful media frenzy involving the. Syrian um, refugees who were, who were washing up on the shores of European countries uh, when the war in Syria was at its worst. And how there was this widespread, you know, screeching call for nations to open their borders immediately right now to the Syrian refugees, especially, and oftentimes from people in high positions in the church. And my immediate reaction was, oh my God, this is awful. We have to help them, as it should be for anyone. But that immediate reaction was also tempered by my knowledge of history and my knowledge of politics and my understanding that whatever short-term solution I might be affecting by immediately opening the borders to everybody who might be coming in without any sort of process of, I don't know what, what it would be. I'm not, a, I'm not a political scientist. I don't know how, how, how this would work. Three, four, five years down the line, what if some of those people are radicalized in some way, and now they have access to an entire new arsenal of propaganda and potential uh, terrorism, all because my empathetic reaction to their suffering, good in itself, proper in itself, was not tempered by the necessary distance emotional distance that would allow me to make the best decision for everyone. An article, another article that I read written by Catherine Baker, a wonderful one for, for Mercator.net, makes the, makes the point that some psychologists have made that this is how families, you know, the traditional families work well. The mother is the, is the empathic or empathetic one because she has to be, because she's the mother. While the father very often provides the emotional distance not to react constantly with the kind of I must save you now instinct that 
protects the baby from dying. But if that impulse that the father often has, this is me talking, this is psychologist psychologists talking, right? So you know, take it up with them, not me, if you don't like the way that this, this is being phrased. The absence of a father doing fatherly things or the absence of the mother because she's off uh, getting her career or whatever and she's not spending enough time, as much time as she would like with her family doing empathetic things and then feels guilty about it. This is an actual thing that happens. And then begin, begins to act towards her older children when they're six, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, as if they were six-month-old newborns and allowing them to do whatever they want every time they make a squeal because her reaction is immediately to stop the suffering. Then you have children who are unable to empathize with anyone else. You have sociopath children. Well, children who have an empathetic mother and a more detached, emotionally detached father end up becoming emotionally empathetic. As odd as it is. And this is what really bothers me about about Game of Thrones. And this is ultimately for me why, why this series doesn't work. It's not the fact of the excessive violence or the sexual um, or the, you know, the, the graphic nature of the sex scenes. I don't like that stuff. I tend to skip it. I, I, I just, I think it's bad. I, it's not, it's not good for me. I don't, I don't enjoy it. And I don't, I don't find titillation in any way, a positive experience. Um, but it's not those things that, that ultimately turned me away from the series. It is this unrem- unremitting bleakness that has behind it a twisting of what empathy should be. Because empathy should be an opportunity for you to feel the suffering of another person so that then you can extend the hand and pull that person out of that suffering. That is the point of love. That is the point of everything that Dostoevsky has ever written. Anything that ever, And that's really, that's the thing that you feel in The Lord of the Rings when you read it. That's, that's the thing that you take away. There is that pain. There is, there is that, that bitterness. But there is the gray havens at the end. There is a possibility of, of going to the undying lands. This is what's so awful about silence, about this movie, about ostensibly about, mission, about missionaries. But the message there is that the apparently universal truths of Christianity are untenable in the, in the moist and swampy soil of Japan. So better let it die and sacrifice yourself along with it so that you avoid the temporary suffering of those people who are in your flock, which is apparently a message of love, but actually, if you consider the fact that Christianity is based on the idea that we are here in this world only temporarily and our striving should be towards something beyond, it undercuts the whole idea of everything. And this is what I found to be so interesting and so surprising about The Morning Show. The Morning Show is... is (laughs) It's a super melodramatic uh, show. If you watch only the first four or five episodes, you'd think that it's one of the worst shows on TV. It's got people overreacting to everything. It's got people with absolutely no actual human problems that you could equate with actual human suffering, pretending like the world is ending around them. And yet, all that is actually to a point. Because we come to the end where there actually is a very painful moment of human suffering. And there is a widespread lack of compassion because of overactive empathy and the fear that overactive empathy engenders. Because if you're over, overactively empathetic to, to the victims of the Me Too movement, 
you will automatically overcompensate in your attempts to punish potential predators, even the ones who may not have been predators, right? You start to look at a certain kind of man as guilty before he's proven guilty, as as presumed guilty, because to do otherwise would mean to be not empathetic with those who suffered. And the show goes there. It says, yes, this is what we're going to do. This is the proper reaction to the Me Too movement. And it ends in a horrifying, awful tragedy from a person that you wouldn't even expect to have this tragedy. And the last scene of the show is an attempt to break free of this cycle of overwhelming, endless hamster-in-a-wheel empathy to provide people with an actual opportunity to be actively compassionate. And I swear, the last scene, it ended, and I was like, wow, what did I just watch? I watched a ridiculous melodramatic show about people who think they do something important. A morning show? Give me a break. And yet, it had more important things to tell me about the human condition than Game of Thrones, which is a fantasy. Fantasies should be the vehicle for truth about the human condition more than any other genre. That's what I strongly believe. Is why I write fantasy. And yet, here we go. It was a silly melon-melon drama about a morning show that ended up telling me the most interesting and most profound truth about how it is that we should relate to each other properly. How can, how we can love each other in a way that doesn't infringe on our own selfhood and their selfhood and doesn't continue a cycle of victimhood that benefits absolutely nobody. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.